صباح الياسمين صباح الخير from Bethlehem This morning we're extremely honored by having a star of the Arab world Tala Bashmi Tala thank you for being with us Thank you for having me a star I feel like flattered <laughs> Well you're you're this Bahraini chef that's been doing fantastic work you're I think the most outspoken and courageous Arab woman chef and it's really an honor to have you. Thank you, thank you, seriously. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Tela, I'm, you know, people know you for what you're doing in the restaurant, in your, um, on social media, as a TV personality, but then I want to take you back to childhood. Mm-hmm. What was Tala like as a kid with food? Tala as a kid with food loved food. I loved food to the point where I was definitely a fat kid. And uh, my relationship with food uh, started early on. My dad's influence, Baban, uh, going to markets with him, etc. Uh, so yeah, my interest and passion kind of started really early. What was your favorite dish as a kid? As a kid, my favorite dish, that's an inter- I actually loved Chinese food growing up. My parents told me I should marry a Chinese guy because I was obsessed with Chinese food. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and at home, did you have, you had Bahraini food? Yes. Yani, we grew up at home always eating... Arabic food, uh, I hate generalizing, but my dad studied in Egypt, so we also had mulkhiya, we ate hamam, we ate um, melfouf, all of these different um, countries' food, but definitely Arabic food, Bahraini food, every day. Then you, how did your career start? So you, you were in love with food, your parents were going to marry you off to a Chinese guy so you could have Chinese food <laughs> every day, and then you start, you become a chef. How did, it, how did that happen? Um, honestly, it wasn't very straightforward. I mean, I grew up uh, playing football, like soccer, with the national team for eight years. And my passion was I wanted to be a football player. Um, so I went off to university in the States. And once I started competing at the highest level, I'm like, dude, you're not good enough to be to do this for a living. And that's where I had to have a shift Kind of, and my second interest and passion has always been art. So I shifted to art. Um, after I shifted to art, I came back to Bahrain um, from being abroad and started my little home business, uh, baking. I joined markets, etc. So it started with this little home business, and from there, I was like, okay. I can be this person that makes brownies and cupcakes or I can become legitimate and actually train and study to be a chef. So that happened around the age of 20, 21. And you studied, where, where did you study cooking? Uh, Switzerland. So I went to Switzerland in 2015. Yeah, five years ago. 
Yeah, so there was a long process of me training at the hotel for four years, spent a year peeling onions and carrots and potatoes and butchering 50 kilos of meat a day. Um, my forearms were, were so sore, it's ridiculous. Um, but I wanted to prove myself. So then when I came back to Bahrain, trained for another year before I got the position of sous chef. And um, as a sous chef, I was working in operations in the hotel for about another year and a half until I got my head chef position. And then you defined your culinary identity because your, your dishes are very, very personal, I feel. That there's really a yes. strong identity. I mean, you look at a dish and you're like, Tarabashim. How did this process happen? Because what's interesting, I did my classes in France. I trained in France. I, I totally understand. I'm a bit older. So at the time I trained, there was no regulations as to what chefs could do to you in a kitchen. So I, all, I not only had to peel potatoes and butcher meat, but I also had to deal with some quite crazy chefs that... But I mean, I, I learned the hard way and I love having learned that way. I was lucky to work I can with... relate, by the way. I will tell you a, a fun story afterwards. I love that. But then it took me time to join what I knew, what I had learned with what I knew as, as a kid from my grandmother's kitchen, what I eat until today in my mother's kitchen, and then create my own... Palestinian modern cuisine um, and, and take the, the, the bull by the horns a bit and say, you know what, it's not sacred, let's try and think about it differently. And, and, and anyway, a cuisine to survive needs to be modernized at a certain moment. We fail, we succeed, but that's what a kitchen is about. It's not 100% success. success. But I, so I relate a lot to that process you, you had. What was the most difficult when you were studying a foreign cuisine, let me say, or a foreign way of cooking, which was different to what Bahraini food is, how did that thinking process come into Tela today doing these fantastic modern Bahraini food? Okay, so basically, maybe you know this or have an idea of this when it comes to Switzerland, is they're very disciplined, they're very punctual, they're very um, by the book. All of these things, and they're perfectionists. All of these things are things that these things are things that make you a better chef, things that I didn't have. It became less of a pirate in the kitchen, more of a definitely I have the perfectionist thing. So I found that really difficult. If I had a gastro on my table, half an inch, not like perfectly straight, my chef would tell me off. So for me, apart from techniques, I feel like that kind of discipline and perfection and precision, uh, I definitely learned from and I brought it back and I used the techniques, the new techniques, the sous vide five years ago was still not new, but new to me. So I took the way they transform their food and techniques and applied it to our much more flavorful, I feel, cuisine. It, it's interesting you, you talk about precision in the Swiss. Um, <laughs> my, 
I know Montreux quite well, and coming from from a French mentality, I, I often laugh at the Swiss and, and you know say you know please who has lunch between twelve and twelve thirty? Like this is not, <laughs> but 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 it is something to their credit. Um, and in the kitchens, it's extremely important. And I think when you tackle trying to apply techniques that are as precise as sous vide, if you're taking the sous vide example. We, we've been doing slow cookings at low temperatures for centuries. And then the day we started doing kitchens, I mean restaurant kitchens, in the Arab world, and I'm generalizing a bit, we dropped it off because it just sounded as if it was something that's not applicable anymore to the kitchen. And we ended up all doing mezzas wherever you went across the Middle East because everything that was more slow-cooked, Long cookings just sounded as if it's impossible to do in a kitchen. Today with sous vide, we can go back to our food and do it on very, very long cookings at very low temperatures and create something that's quite funky. I mean, I, I enjoy doing a, a lamb feta where I do my lamb short ribs in sous vide for three days. And it just works. Wow, that sounds delicious. We're going to be cooking together soon. I hope so. So when we talk about that kind of taking an old dish and uh, using sous vide, so I was thinking about bocha. Bocha is um, something that obviously we have a lot of people that came in from India and Iraq that brought this dish over, which is usually a goat tongue and knuckle kind of soup. So I wanted to take this dish that's not very appealing, you know, and transform it. So I sous vide the tongue with a mirepoix and a lot of flavor for 48 hours mm. and ended up slicing it and searing it in like coffee butter and making a consomme of the knuckles. So that made the dish taste the same, has the essence, but is much more appealing to the new generation so they understand their food and their traditional food. It sounds delicious. I, I, I want to try that one. Because you, you, you use the magic word, essence. What we do in our plates is, at the end, try and capture the essence of identity. Tell me about it's, um, Bahraini it's, uh, identity. Bahraini identity. So Bahrain, if you compare it to other countries or states in the Gulf, is different in a sense that we're an island. We're an island, we're island folk, where our history, part of our history is we have a lot of uh, fishermen, we have a lot of pearl divers. So we've had to um, kind of create methods of preservation and preserving food that other countries in the Gulf don't need or didn't need to use. Um, also, Bahrain, in comparison to other Gulf countries, is not a wealthy country saying that a lot of our dishes um, are based on making the most of what you have. So it's a sentence that my dad always says, which means make, yani a translation is make the most of what you have. So the essence of that is make the food with love, with flavor, with whatever you have at home. And, and that's a cuisine of survival that... Today is, is coming back because people are realizing yeah. that we're wasting massive amounts of food and it's, people are, are going towards more responsible cooking ways. 
Um, in my, my case, I create my menu um, every morning. I go to the farmers, what produce they have is what I'll be using that day. And we only work on booking, so I know I'm cooking for 20 people or 100 people that night. But I, I like your, your father's sentence is really, you use everything to its, to its best. Yes. To the bone. <laughs> to the bone, exactly. What's the favorite dish, a few new dishes that your father enjoys? Okay, my dad's favorite dish, it's a dish I put on my menu, and it's, it's in essence, a simple dish, but it's really not. Um, chibbe trebion, which is, chibbe kibbe is the same, but it's a prawn dumpling, and it's stuffed with um, raisins, sautéed onions, and comes with a tamarind sauce. Mm. So that's a dish I took from my grandmother, and I realized there were a few things that I could improve on it texturally so i did that with the same flavor presented simply that's definitely one of my father's favorite dishes you mentioned tamarind and tamarind is, is very much used in indian cuisine what are the influences that bahrain had other than indian so when people say bahraini cuisine it's um we do have staple dishes that you say this is Bahraini, but Bahrain, people forget, is a melting pot. Bahrain is a port or has a port and it was always used for trade. So we have a big community of people from India, from Pakistan, from Thailand, from the Philippines, uh, Iran. So we have dishes that we've kind of adapted to our food in a sense. So Persian food is very much um, Bahraini food kind of morphed with all of these cuisines. So when someone says Bahraini food, I can't say it's just this. It's everything. It's everything. I grew up eating Filipino food. So for me, this is all kind of how the U.S., they have the Korean, they have the Chinese, they have the Mexican cuisine. It's the same. It's a melting pot. So these influences survived separately but then also morphed into a local version of things and and that's the beauty of kitchens is is that they evolve with with time and with the different human beings and, and their cultures that that interact to creating something new and and ever and always changing into something new what do you think you contributed to bahraini cuisine i feel like um, our cuisine is kind of and has always been traditional. In a sense, it's always been a comfort sharing kind of meal that a family would enjoy together or friends would enjoy together. And it's never been elevated. And our food is very um, fatty, you know? <laughs> so um obviously you add fat salt or sugar to anything and it's addictive and delicious but to create good food with a lot of flavor reducing those things i feel like um that takes a little bit more practice and i'm trying to apply that to my food so i'm elevating the food and rather than people coming to the restaurant to eat and be stuffed i'm trying to create an experience and understanding and tell a story with each plate how difficult is that in a place where people traditionally would go and eat 
until they're they're full. Because that's a bit something I I face here in in Palestine also. Oh my God! So you do have a lot of people that are like, "What do I look like? A bird?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I always say honestly with people, absolutely, because I'm just starting to make people understand. I'm just starting to. I want to shape people's palates differently. So I will always tell these people, listen, if you're still hungry, I'm happy to feed you. And I do. If they're still hungry, I'm happy to feed them. Because that extra dish makes a difference in them wanting to come back and me being able to continually shape the palates. Because, <clears throat> because of the influence of all of these countries, a lot of the chefs or the cooks are from India or from the Philippines. So they, they have shaped the people's palates. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, mm. they have shaped our palates, and people have pasta with a mixed sauce of tomato and cream because, oh. you know, <sighs> this is how their palate was shaped. So I'm trying to slowly change that, and that's going to take a very long time, but it'll be worth it. I'm sure it'll be. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge. It's beautiful mm. to see it evolve. And I've I've been open for five years now, and I remember one of my first first amuse-bouche, the farmer I work with that has peas, was extremely happy to come to come in with the first peas that had matured in Palestine. I literally had the first ten kilos wow. of peas; they were just fantastic. And I decided to use half of them, blanch them. And the other half have them raw on a little plate with a tiny bit of Dead Sea salt from the only Palestinian producer that still produces Dead Sea salt and a little bit of dibas, the, the grape molasses that I had reduced even more on the side. So people had a, had a choice to dip their peas in it or not. And one of the guests tells the maître d'hôtel, says, can you go get me the chef? So I, I was like, okay, I, I know what that's going to be about. And the guy looks at me and he's like, you know what? You're making fun of us. And I was like, please, just taste one. Taste one pea, and then we'll, we'll talk about me making fun of you or not. And he, he didn't want to. So I, I knew the guest a bit. I could allow myself a bit more uh, persuasion. So I took a pea from his plate, and I put it in his mouth. And he just cracked it. And he looked at me, and he's like, wow. That's, I was a kid. So this guy was like 70 years old. Like when I was a kid, I'd go with my mother and pick the first piece of the season. Exactly. <laughs> Why are you today having them only as a puree or as a gratin with like fake cheese on top? You yep. know, just go back to, to real tastes. And that's something that, that I feel you, which is quite important in what you're doing. Um, but then there's something else that is extremely important in what you're doing. And it's you being a woman chef in the Arab world that's really out there in terms of your skills, in terms of elevating and renewing the cuisine in an Arab world where women chefs are still not having the space they deserve. How does that feel? Well, so I'll tell you this. My whole life, it's always been, oh, you're amazing or you're good for a girl. 
that has been something I've always heard. And to me, that's always pissed the hell out of me. Because I'm like, what do you mean for a girl? Mm-hmm. You know? So mm-hmm. for me, when I went on Top Chef and I reached the final and I competed as me, I went for a competition. I never acted like anything on TV because I don't know how to act. The producer, who is a woman, at the end of the season told me, you're the first person to come on the show and not represent a woman chef, but you showed people that you're a chef and you're a good chef. You're not a good female chef. And for me to achieve that, that's all I wanted, really. That's your strength. And that's, that is what people need to understand today. And that's why I was asking you the question. It's your chef. Full yep. stop. Your talented, exactly. skilled chef. Full stop. You know, I, I get this a lot because my team in, in my kitchen are practically all women and quite young women. And people are like, oh, but it's great. You have a, a female sous chef. And I'm like, no, I have a good sous chef. I'm very, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm very proud of what she's learned from me and her what she can do. And I have somebody who does pastries who's also a great young lady and she's doing great stuff. But it's not because she's a woman that I hired her. Uh, I hired her because she had skills or because she wanted to learn. But then there's the whole perception of women in kitchens, and I'm talking about professional kitchens, it's a bit, this is something I felt since, since always here, um, is at home, we all expect our grandmothers and our mothers to be fantastic cooks and, and be multi-talented in you know, running a house and what have you, and having a career. And then once you go to professional kitchens, it's like, well, yeah, a woman chef can be an Instagram blogger, you know, but it's not true. A, wom- a woman chef that's talented or a male chef that's talented can run, run a fantastic kitchen, regardless of their gender. Is, is that something that, that, that you've faced in your career of being looked at like a woman before being looked at as, as a chef? Oh, definitely. When I first took over the restaurant at the hotel, um, there were two chefs already working there. They've been there working under a male chef for a while. And both of them didn't call me chef. And they would never refer to me as chef. Um, One of them would not respect me to the point where I told them, listen, if you don't want to be here because I'm a woman, then by all means, I don't want you here either. And I told him to F off and ended up working with me and one other guy in a restaurant that has 50 covers because I didn't want to deal with that. But I will say it doesn't only apply to our region. When I was in Europe, oh God, the chef I worked under for six months, he hated me, by the way. Um, He hated Arabs, he hated Muslims, and he hated women. And I was the holy trinity. (laughs) (laughs) For six months, he referred to me as woman. Hey, woman. Wow. For six months, he called me woman. And he knew my name. And 
Yeah, um, I would say for the entire six months, from morning till night, he would destroy me. He would destroy me to the point where the guys I was working with looked at me with tears in their eyes like, I'm so sorry, and I couldn't do anything. What was I going to do? So definitely, this is not just in our region. Um, in our region, what I would say, they do in the kitchen, by the way, is if you're going to go lift something heavy, They'll be like, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. I'll carry it for you. It's too heavy. But if you're in Europe, they'll be like, hey, carry that, at least to me at that point. So now what I learned is when a guy is like, oh, it's too heavy, I'd say, okay, sure, carry it for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's just the way you deal with things, I guess. But you know, you know that's something, I mean, I, I remember 25 years ago in, Paris and then in London, the few women that worked in the kitchens with us were always going through what, what you just described. And if if they combined more than one of the uh, things a chef didn't like, i.e., their gender, religion, and or ethnicity, um, it would just be a, a you know the, the holy trinity you just described, where they would just be <laughs> the victims of the victims of a million layers of oppression. And things are changing, but not much. Uh, in our industry, it's still slow to change. Um, the last few years, people have started tackling mental challenges in kitchens, which nobody talked about before. And the chef used to work like a dog and, and be totally depressed and, and overstressed. And he or she would still have to walk out in front of the guests and have a big smile. And Anthony Bourdain was a bit one of the ones that, that did start talking about it before he, he left us. But then today people are talking more and more about the situation of women in kitchens. And, and there's been a few cases in the last couple of years of sexual misconduct in kitchens and that whole gender oppression stereotype. I I I have to be honest. When I when I first got to know your work, I, I remember seeing one picture of you in, in in on your Instagram, and being like, "Wow, you know what? I don't know many European chefs that would be as courageous as that." In turn, I, and I think it was some some dish. I can't remember exactly, but it was some dish you had tackled that was a, a traditional dish and you were out there doing it with total confidence you, you were presenting it and and I think part of it is about your your upbringing and maybe part of it was your football career that also gave you that strength of, of knowing what you want you talk a lot about your father so did your father really help define your identity like give you that inherited um, gene or what is it what's the secret tell basically that's what i'm trying to ask <laughs> i would say um my father is a wealth of knowledge literally he knows every local fish's name he knows when they're in season he knows how to pick a lime a good lime without even touching it just by looking at it and these are things he like instilled in me and not just that he's my biggest critic until today Every dish I make, he has something to say about it. So that 
pushes me and drives me to always try to do better and perfect it. That's fantastic. I mean, to even have... when I make popcorn, by the way, my dad's like, uh, should I give you my comments? <laughs> popcorn. Can you just eat it? <laughs> okay, so it goes from popcorn to your, until your very sophisticated dishes. Yep. Well, it's good to have a food critic at home. It's always good. <laughs> um, it's a nightmare. But, but we sometimes need a, a mirror. That's true. Yeah. It's it's important, you know. I. I, I have the same with, with my mother and father. and Sometimes I call my mother up and I'm like, so how are you doing this? And she'll tell me a traditional recipe. Then she'll, she'll apply a bit of her own creativity on it. And that would be something I'm using maybe as a base to try and think about re recreating a dish. And then when I do, and they decide to come over for, for dinner at the restaurant, I get to I get like an email at night with her comments on it, and it usually <laughs> at, at the end it it sometimes is, I mean usually the message at the end is but you know what it was actually quite good, but my way is still better, <laughs> and I love this because it just pushes us to That's do amazing. to do to do better and and we need a a wake up call sometimes to you know because I think we of all of course honesty. It's important because in our, and that's something I think that's very much in our culture, we're usually very kind to each other in public. Uh, <laughs> we, oh, 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 yes. And uh, it's not always the case. Sometimes you need to tell people, no, that's not how it happens. And that's not how it is. And, and you know, that doesn't taste good. I, mean, I have no problem having people telling me, I didn't like that dish. What I hate is people telling me that's not the way it should be done. Because, no, I, that's my way and that's it. Yes. But do tell me I didn't like it. I, I respect that. I didn't like it, but with a reason. Like, what did you not like is what I like to know, you know, because I didn't like it. Okay, it's a personal preference, you know, possibly. But is it a technical error? Is it a seasoning error? Is it, you know, these are all things I like to also um, take into consideration. But if someone just says, I don't like it, I'm just like, all right, <laughs> you're a little <laughs> spoiled. What's the most recurrent negative comment you get at the restaurant? Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so portion sizes, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, that comes up a lot. But, okay, I know how to read my guests. I have an open kitchen, glass, yeah, mm -hmm. so I can see the guests, whether I know them or I don't know them. I tell my team this. <laughs> a couple walks in, I'm like, I bet you they're going to order the steak. And guess what? They order the steak. Um, but, for example, when it comes to my tasting menu, so I have a la carte and tasting menu, my tasting menu is there for people that come for my food specifically, that are willing to try the unusual, and that will initially even say i don't want to look at the menu give me whatever you want these people are are the people that i hope i can develop people into but also when i have guests come in and get a tasting menu and they don't know me and i see them i can kind of 
tell, hey, this person might eat more. So I'll kind of slightly increase the portion size. Um, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I kind of try to read things ahead of time as well. So I think the biggest thing would be portion size, but I try kind of to gauge it. Mm. it it's, it's very interesting what you're doing because you're, you're really creating something new and, and, and that's that breath of fresh air is, is quite sensible. Um, <laughs> it's really, I, I can feel it when, when I'm hearing you speak. And I can imagine the stress in your kitchen. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, You're not an easy chef to be working with, are you? Um, I try. So my chefs were terrible. They were negative. They were destructive. So I tried to not be what I had. So my team, actually, my team, I'm surprised, when they described me, they literally, in all honesty, said I was patient. And that's the thing. I am patient, but I will allow you to make mistakes. I tell my team, listen, if you mess something up during service, tell me on the spot and we can fix it. If you give me something raw or overcooked, knowing it is, that's kind of... A kind of disrespect to me. It's like, what do you think I'm dumb? Do you think I'm going to send it out that way? Or do you not know it's wrong? I don't know what's worse. So I will get mad and I will give my team shit if they do something like that. If they've done something 50 times, you should be able to do with your eyes closed. You either don't care, you stop caring. So those are the things that piss me off. But if I see you're trying and you make a mistake during a busy service we can rescue the situation if you tell me on the spot but if you give me something and i have a table of 10 all let's say seven dishes are perfect but three aren't what am i gonna do you know what i mean so i'm Mm. i try to be patient i try to be understanding i tell them there's no stupid questions but if you mess up and don't tell me i will get mad <laughs> yeah i i know i know exactly what you mean i i feel with you because that's something i i also have in my kitchen um one of the other things i've had challenges with is meat cookings mm. <laughs> and a lot of the negative comments i've had from certain types of guests is the meat was raw or the meat was undercooked uh, is this something you, you're facing? Uh, definitely. So personally, if I could, I wouldn't really want to have steak on the menu only because from everything that I do, from everything that I offer and everything that I believe my cuisine and philosophy is, if you come to me and just order a steak, that upsets me. You know, that really upsets me. But mm. I have to have it on the menu because... People, a lot of people want to order a steak. So when you order a steak, you tell me you're done this. You know what? I'm not going to get mad anymore. I will laugh when I say it's well, when I tell my team it's well done. I will laugh and I say, throw it in the oven. I don't care how it comes out because you want it well done. You want a, a slipper that's on you. Um, but when it comes to a tasting menu again, I can serve people the meat Doneness that I think it should be. 
and they accept it unless they ask otherwise. So I've kind of just, I've learned that I'm still in the beginning. People don't come to me because I'm uh, Massimo Bottura or I'm uh, Grant Ackett or no, they, I'm not even close to being there. So I have to, at the end of the day, think of the customer, especially if they're not there for Tala Beshmi and her cuisine. But Tala, you, with the meat, if, if I'm coming to your restaurant and I'm asking for the tasting menu, it means I am curious to see who's Tala Beshmi. And if, if, I, if I get served a slipper, <laughs> I'll judge you on the slipper. I won't judge you on the rest, even if the rest was fantastic. And that's really like, you know, we introduced meat aging in Palestine. And I'm lucky to have fantastic butchers. They've been butchers for five generations. We started meat aging together for beef. We mature our kudaba for 45 days. Honestly, when my head waiter comes up to the window at the kitchen, I don't have an open kitchen. I have a closed kitchen. And part of the reason is because they, my staff try and lock me in it. Um, <laughs> when the waiter comes up, the, the head waiter with an order, and he's like, uh, chef, I'm like, okay, you know what? I see your face. And you're basically saying okay. on today's menu, there's a cut de buff that I put, and you somebody wants it well done. Well, you know, can you tell them to go book somewhere else? Because yeah. <laughs> you can't, I mean, and that's where I try. I mean, you read people and I I try and read people when I get the, the list of reservations because we have a, we only have one menu we offer. So, um, and if I see within the people, a recurrent guest, I know that's already not said they don't like meat, that that's not well done. Or if, when they've done a booking, we ask people, do you have allergies, do you have sensitivities? Um, yep. If they've indicated it, then I will prefer working with slow-cooked lamb rather than yep. beef and matured beef. And then very finally, some of these guests that will not have senior meat at the restaurant, I, I also take them to the market. And when we go to the market, one of the traditions is we go to my butchers and I take a liver and do a carpaccio with olive oil and a bit of lemon fresh there and I feed it to people they, these same, same people will eat the liver and that drives me crazy I'm like wait I don't get it last night you didn't want to have a senior meat in the restaurant and now you're eating raw liver like come on what, what's you know make up your mind that's that's you shaping their palate yep it's one bite at a time and one spoonful at a time where we shape people I mean I don't I don't say we shape people's palate. I think we give them an option and then they can choose whatever they want. Good true. good That's products, true. simple tastes, or something covered with mayonnaise. It's their oh choice. God. It's their choice, not ours. <laughs> so basically, also touching on the fact that I have an open kitchen, um, it is difficult, but when I have guests coming in for the tasting menu, for example, let's say this, it's the same tasting menu for that week, and I have a guest come in twice, or they come in a month later, and one of my dishes has salmon, and they had a type of salmon the, the time before, I'll see them, I'll tell service, our first course is salmon, he had salmon last time, or I train them 
to try to remember because I never like to give people the same thing twice unless they request it, especially with the tasting menu. Mm -hmm. So I try to pay attention to detail. I tell my, my service team, guys, if someone's left-handed, try to remember, note it down, switch the cutlery because it's these little things that make a difference. Exactly. And that's, that's what our job, our passion, our call it whatever you want, that's what it's all about. It's about hospitality yeah. to start with. And hospitality yeah. is caring about each guest individually. And details are important. Tana, what would you like to tell people? It's the last question, so it's all yours. What do you want to tell people? What do I want to tell people? Um, most importantly, what I want to tell people is part of my philosophy, and I hope it's something that resonates with people, which is memories, mental memories with smells, with sights, with, with tastes, is something that kind of brings us all together. And I think that's really important, is food is happiness, and it's happiness that brings everyone together. So what I try to do is bring a sense of nostalgia, is kind of try to stir something in people's minds to bring us all together because that's the magic food isn't just to eat and to go food is is an experience is an experience so we need to start enjoying it as that we need to live slower like we're forced to right now and kind of change the way we see food and i really hope that people open their minds and educate themselves in that sense, and enjoy the experience. Della, thank you. Um, a few days ago, I was talking to a Japanese writer, food... I, I like how she defines herself. Uh, Ryoko calls herself a food translator. And we discussed in length a concept, which is the kitchen of light and the kitchen of prayer and you've just in your last message this is a bit what you're touching is cooking and eating are moments of prayer and are moments where you either transmit or receive light and light being that combination of smell texture pleasure happiness nostalgia and memories thank you Tala thank you for having me it's really been a pleasure Sabah al-Khair it's been great Sabah al-Khair from Bethlehem